Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 41 In which Becky revisits the halls of her ancestors. So Colonel Crawley and his wife took a couple of places in the same high-flyer coach by which Rebecca had travelled with the old baronet on her first journey into the world some nine years before. Rawdon sat by the coachman and talked about horses the whole way. At Mudbury, a carriage and pair were waiting for them, with a coachman in black. "'Ah, I see Dawson and the ironmonger has his shutters up,' said Rebecca as they drove. "'Surely that can't be Polly Tallboys, that bouncing girl at the cottage there. "'I remember her as a mangy little urchin picking weeds in the garden.' "'Fine gal,' said Rawdon, returning the cottager's salute. "'Becky bowed and waved graciously to people she recognized, "'as if she was coming to the home of her ancestors.' Rawdon was rather cast down, on the other hand. What recollections of boyhood might have been flitting across his brain? What pangs of dim remorse and doubt? "'Your sisters must be young women now,' Rebecca said, thinking of those girls for the first time since she had left them. "'Don't know,' replied the colonel. "'Hello, here's old Mother Locke. How do you do, Mrs. Locke? Remember me, don't you?' The carriage went through the lodge gates kept by old Mrs. Locke and passed between the moss-grown pillars. "'The governor's cut the timber,' Rawdon said, looking about, and then was silent. So was Becky. Both of them were rather agitated and thinking of old times. He about Eton and his mother— a frigid, demure woman, and a sister who died, of whom he had been passionately fond, and how we used to thrash Pitt and about little Rawdy at home. And Rebecca thought about her own youth and the dark secrets of those early, tainted days, and of her entrance into life by these gates, and of Joe and Amelia. The gravel walk and terrace had been scraped clean. Two very solemn personages in black flung open a door each as the carriage pulled up at the familiar steps. Rawdon turned red, and Becky somewhat pale, as they passed through the old hall, arm in arm. Sir Pitt and his wife received them in the oak parlour, along with Lady Southdown, wearing a large black headpiece of bugles and feathers. Sir Pitt had judged correctly that she would not quit the house. She contented herself by keeping a stony silence and by frightening the children with the ghastly gloom of her manner. A very faint bending of the headdress and plumes welcomed Rawdon and his wife, but her ladyship was not important to them. They were intent upon the reception which the reigning brother and sister would give them. 
Pitt shook his brother's hand and saluted Rebecca with a handshake and a low bow. But Lady Jane took her sister-in-law's hands and kissed her affectionately. The embrace somehow brought tears into the eyes of the little adventuress. Jane's artless kindness touched her, and Rawdon was encouraged to twirl up his mustachios and salute Lady Jane with a kiss, which caused her to blush exceedingly. "'Devilish nice little woman, Lady Jane,' was his verdict, when he and his wife were alone together. "'Pets got fat.' Rebecca agreed with her husband's further opinion that the mother-in-law was a tremendous old guy, and the sisters were well, rather good-looking young women. They had been summoned from school to attend the funeral. Rebecca did not attempt to forget her former position as their governess, but recalled it frankly and kindly, and asked them about their studies, and told them that she had thought of them many a time. "'She's hardly changed in eight years.' said Miss Rosalind to Miss Violet, as they were preparing for dinner. "'Red-haired women look wonderfully well,' replied the other. "'Hers is darker than it was. I think she must dye it. "'At least she gives herself no airs and remembers that she was our governess once,' Miss Violet said, meaning that it befitted governesses to keep their proper place, and forgetting that she was granddaughter not only of Sir Walpole Crawley, but of Mr. Dawson of Mudbury, and so had a coal scuttle in her coat of arms. It can't be true what the girls at the rectory said, that her mother was an opera dancer. Oh, a person can't help their birth, Rosalind replied with great liberality. An Aunt Butte need not talk. She wants to marry Kate to young Hooper, the wine merchant. The bell rang for dinner, and these young women went down. But before this, Lady Jane conducted Rebecca to the rooms prepared for her, which had been much improved recently. Seeing that Mrs. Rawdon's modest little trunks were placed in the bedroom, she helped her sister-in-law take off her neat black bonnet and cloak, and asked her how she could be useful. "'What I should like best,' said Rebecca, "'would be to go to the nursery and see your dear little children.' on which the two ladies looked very kindly at each other, and went there hand in hand. Becky admired little Matilda, who was not quite four, as the most charming little love in the world, and the boy, a little fellow of two years, pale, heavy-eyed, and large-headed, she pronounced to be a perfect prodigy. <sighs> I wish Mamma would not insist on giving him so much medicine. Lady Jane said with a sigh, and then they had one of those confidential medical conversations about the children which all mothers delight in. Within half an hour, Becky and Lady Jane were intimate friends. Jane thought her new sister-in-law was a kind, frank, unaffected young woman. Having easily won the daughter's good will, the indefatigable little woman bent herself to conciliate the august lady Southdown. As soon as she found her ladyship alone, Rebecca told her that her own little boy was actually saved by Calomel when all the physicians in Paris had given him up. 
and then she mentioned how often she had heard of Lady Southdown from the excellent Reverend Lawrence Grills, minister of the chapel in Mayfair, and how misfortunes had changed her views, and she hoped that a life spent in worldliness and error might not prevent more serious thought in the future. She described how she had formerly been indebted to Mr. Crawley for religious instruction, touched upon the washerwoman of Finchley Common, and asked about Lady Emily, its gifted author. But she crowned all by feeling very unwell after the funeral and requesting her ladyship's medical advice. The dowager not only gave it, but came privately in the night to Becky's room with a parcel of favorite tracts and a medicine of her own composition, which she insisted that Mrs. Rawdon should take. Becky began to examine the tracts with great interest, hoping to escape medication. But Lady Southdown would not leave until the cup was emptied. Becky looked and felt very uneasy when Rawdon came in. He exploded with laughter when Becky, with a fun which she could not disguise, described the occurrence. Lord Steyne and her son in London had many a laugh over the story when Rawdon and his wife returned to Mayfair, and Becky acted the scene for them. "'Give us Lady Southdown and the Black Doze!' was a constant cry amongst the folks in Becky's little drawing-room. Sir Pitt remembered the respect which Rebecca had paid him in early days and was well disposed towards her. The marriage, ill-advised as it was, had improved Rawdon very much. That was clear from the colonel's altered habits. And had it not been a lucky union as regarded Pitt himself, he owed his fortune to it. His satisfaction was increased by Rebecca's behavior towards him. She doubled the deference which before had charmed him, calling out his conversational powers in a way that surprised Pitt himself. Rebecca was able to convince Lady Jane that it was Mrs. Bute Crawley who brought about the marriage, that it was Mrs. Bute's avarice which invented all the wicked reports against Rebecca. She succeeded in making us poor, Rebecca said, with an air of angelical patience. "'But how can I be angry with a woman "'who has given me one of the best husbands in the world? "'Oh, dear Lady Jane, what care we for poverty? "'I am used to it from childhood, "'and I am often thankful that Miss Crawley's money "'has gone to restore the splendor of such a noble old family. "'I am sure Sir Pitt will make a much better use of it "'than Rawdon would.' All these speeches were reported to Sir Pitt by his faithful wife, and increased the favorable impression which Rebecca made. While she was pursuing these schemes, and Pitt was arranging the funeral and other matters, and Lady Jane was busy with her nursery, as far as her mother would let her, the body of the late owner of Queen's Crawley lay in his apartment, watched unceasingly by a woman or two, and three or four undertaker's men, dressed in black and of a proper stealthy and tragical demeanour. They watched the remains in turn, having the housekeeper's room when off duty, where they played cards and drank their beer. The family and servants kept away from the gloomy spot. No one regretted Sir Pitt's death except the poor woman who had hoped to be his wife and who had fled in disgrace from the hall. 
Beyond her and a favorite old dog, the old man had not a single friend to mourn him, having never taken the least pains to secure one. At last his remains were borne to the grave in a becoming manner, the family in black coaches with their handkerchiefs up to their noses, ready for the tears which did not come, the neighboring gentry's carriages at three miles an hour, empty and in profound affliction, the parson speaking the formula about our dear brother departed. Bute's curate, a smart young fellow from Oxford, and Sir Pitt Crawley composed between them an appropriate Latin epitaph, and the former preached a classical sermon, exhorting the survivors not to give way to grief. Then, after a lunch in the servants' hall at Queen's Crawley, the gentry's carriages wheeled off. The old dog used to howl sometimes at first, but... This was the only voice of grief for Sir Pitt Crawley, baronet. The new Sir Pitt Crawley went out to do a little partridge shooting. The sight of those fields of stubble and turnips, now his own, gave him secret joy. Sometimes he took no gun, but went out with a peaceful bamboo cane, Rawdon, his brother, blazing away at his side. Pitt's money and acres had a great effect upon his brother. The penniless colonel became quite obsequious and despised the milksop Pitt no longer. Rawdon gave advice about the stables and cattle, rode over to Mudbury to look at a mare for Lady Jane, and became a most creditable younger brother. He had constant bulletins from Miss Briggs in London about little Rawdon, who sent messages of his own. I am very well, he wrote. I hope you are very well. I hope Mamma is very well. The pony is very well. Great takes me to ride in the park. I can canter. I met the little boy who rode before. He cried when he cantered. I do not cry. Rawdon read these letters to his brother and Lady Jane, who was delighted with them. One day followed another in calm pursuits. Bells rang to meals and to prayers. The young ladies practiced the pianoforte every morning, Rebecca giving them the benefit of her instruction. Then they walked in the park or shrubberies or into the village, descending upon the cottages with Lady Southdown's medicine and tracts. Lady Southdown drove out in a pony chase with Rebecca by her side and listening to her with the utmost interest. Rebecca sang Handel and Haydn to the family in the evenings and began sewing a large tapestry, as if she had been born to this life, as if there were not cares and debts and poverty waiting outside the park gates to pounce upon her when she went into the world again. It isn't difficult to be a country gentleman's wife, Rebecca thought. I could be a good woman if I had five thousand a year. I could dawdle about in the nursery and, and count the apricots on the wall. I could water plants in a greenhouse and pick off dead leaves from the geraniums. I could ask old women about their rheumatism and order half a crown's worth of soup for the poor. I could even drive out ten miles to dine at a neighbor's and dress in the fashions of the year before last. I could pay everybody, if only I had the money." And maybe Rebecca was right, and it was only money which made the difference between her 
and an honest woman. She revisited the old haunts, the fields and woods, the ponds and gardens, the rooms of the old house where she had lived years ago. She remembered her thoughts and feelings then, and contrasted them with the present, now that she had seen the world and raised herself far beyond her original humble station. I have passed beyond it because I have brains, Becky thought, and almost all the rest of the world are fools. I have a gentleman for my husband, and an earl's daughter for my sister, in the very house where I was little better than a servant a few years ago. But am I much better off than when I was the poor painter's daughter, and wheedled the grocer for sugar and tea? I wish I could exchange my position in society and all my relations for a snug sum in the three percent consoles. It may perhaps have struck her that to have been honest and humble and to have done her duty would have brought her equal happiness. But if ever Becky had these thoughts, she was accustomed to walk round them and not look in. During her stay at Queen's Crawley, she made as many friends as she possibly could. Lady Jane and her husband bade her farewell with the warmest goodwill. How happy you will be to see your darling little boy again, Lady Crawley said. Oh, so happy, said Rebecca. She was immensely glad to be free of the place and yet loath to go. Queen's Crawley was abominably stupid, and yet the air there was somehow purer than that which he had been accustomed to breathe. Everybody had been dull, but kind in their way. It is all the influence of a long course of three percents, Becky said to herself, and was very likely right. However, the London lamps flashed joyfully as the stagecoach rolled into Piccadilly, and Briggs had made a beautiful fire in Curzon Street, and little Rawdon was up to welcome back his papa and mamma. Chapter 42 Which Treats of the Osborne Family Considerable time has passed since we have seen old Mr. Osborne of Russell Square, he has not been the happiest of men. He has not always been allowed to have his own way, and to be thwarted in this desire was always harmful to the old gentleman, and it was doubly exasperating when gout, age, loneliness, and disappointments weighed him down. His black hair began to grow white soon after his son's death. His face grew redder, his hands trembled as he poured his glass of port wine. He had proposed for Miss Swartz, but had been rejected scornfully, and she had married a young sprig of Scottish nobility. He was a man to have married a low-born woman and bullied her dreadfully afterwards, but no suitable person presented herself, and instead he tyrannized over his unmarried daughter at home. She had a fine carriage and horses, a prize footman to follow her when she walked, unlimited credit and compliments from all the tradesmen. But she had a woeful time. Frederick Bullock had married Maria Osborne after a great deal of difficulty and grumbling. Frederick insisted that half of the old gentleman's property should be settled upon his Maria and refused to come to the scratch, his own expression, on any other terms. 
Osborne said Fred had agreed to take his daughter with twenty thousand, and he could take it or be hanged. Fred thought himself infamously swindled, and for some time acted as if he would break off the match altogether. Osborne withdrew his account from Bullock and Hulker's bank, and talked about horse-whipping in his usual violent manner. The rupture was, however, only temporary. Fred's father counseled him to take Mariah with the twenty thousand. So he sent off peaceable overtures. It was his father, he said, who had made difficulties. The excuse was sulkily accepted by Mr. Osborne. Hulker and Bullock were a high family of the city aristocracy, and it was something to be connected with them. The marriage was a grand affair. Mr. Mango and Lady Mary Mango were there. Colonel Bludyer of the Dragoon Guards, the Honourable George Bolter, Lord Viscount Castletoddy, Honourable James McMull and Mrs. McMull, formerly Miss Swartz, and a host of fashionables. The young couple had a house near Berkeley Square and a small villa at Roehampton among the banking colony there. Fred was considered to have made rather a misalliance, and Mariah felt it her duty to see her father and sister as little as possible. Of course, she would not utterly break with the old man, who had still so many thousand pounds to give away. Fred Bullock would never allow her to do that. But by inviting her papa and sister to her third-rate parties, and behaving very coldly to them when they came, and by avoiding Russell Square, and begging her father to quit that vulgar place, she did more harm than all Frederick's diplomacy could repair. So, Russell Square is not good enough for Mrs. Mariah, eh? said the old gentleman, as he and his daughter Jane drove away one night from Mrs. Bullock's. So they won't come to Russell Square, won't they? Why, I've got better wine and a handsomer service of silver and a better dinner on my table than ever they see on theirs. The cringing, sneaking, stuck-up fools. When Mrs. Frederick's first child, Frederick Augustus Howard Stanley Devereux Bullock, was born, old Osborne, who was invited to the christening as godfather, refused to attend. He merely sent the child a gold cup with twenty guineas inside it for the nurse. Yet Mariah thought that her father was very much pleased with her. One can fancy the pangs with which Miss Jane Osborne read the Morning Post, where her sister's name occurred in the articles headed Fashionable Reunions, and where she could read a description of Mrs. F. Bullock's costume. Jane's own life, as we have said, was an awful existence. She had to get up on black winter mornings to make breakfast for her scowling old father. She sat silent and trembling opposite him while he read his paper and consumed his muffins and tea. At half-past nine, he went to the city, and she was almost free till dinner-time to visit the kitchen and scold the servants to drive out to see the tradesmen, to leave her cards at the great glum respectable houses of their city friends, or to sit alone in the large drawing-room, waiting for visitors, and working at a huge piece of needlework while the great clock ticked and tolled with mournful loudness in the dreary room. George's picture was gone, laid upstairs in the garret, 
and though father and daughter often thought of him, no mention was ever made of the once darling son. At five o'clock, Mr. Osborne came back to his dinner, which he and his daughter took in silence, or which they shared twice a month with a party of dismal friends of Osborne's age. Old Dr. Gulp and his lady, old Mr. Frowser, the attorney, old Colonel Livermore of the Bombay Army, old Sergeant Toffee and Mrs. Toffee, and sometimes old Sir Thomas Coffin, the celebrated hanging judge. These people exchanged pompous dinners and had solemn rubbers of whist, and their carriages were called at half-past ten. Jane Osborne scarcely ever met a man under sixty. In fact, there had been a secret in poor Jane's life which had made her father more savage and morose than ever. This secret was connected with Miss Wirt, who had a cousin— an artist, Mr. Smee, very celebrated since as a portrait painter, but who once gave drawing lessons to ladies of fashion. Mr. Smee had forgotten where Russell Square is now, but he was glad enough to visit it in the year 1818. When Smee was introduced by Miss Wirt to Miss Osborne, he felt a great attachment for her, which it is believed was returned. Miss Wirt was their confidant. I know not whether she used to leave the room where the master and his pupil were painting in order to give them time alone. All that is certain is that Mr. Osborne came back from the city abruptly, entered the drawing-room, found the painter, the pupil, and the companion, all looking exceedingly pale, turned the former out of doors with threats to break every bone in his skin, and half an hour afterwards dismissed Miss Wirt, kicking her trunks downstairs and shaking his fist at her hackney-coach as it bore her away. Jane Osborne kept her bedroom for many days. She was not allowed to have a companion afterwards. Her father swore that she should not have a shilling if she made any match without his agreement, and as he wanted a woman to keep his house, he did not choose that she should marry. During her papa's life, then, she resigned herself to this existence. Her sister, meanwhile, was having children with finer names every year and they met less and less. It has been described how the Mrs. Dobbin lived with their father at a fine villa at Denmark Hill, whose beautiful graperies and peach trees delighted little Georgie Osborne. The Mrs. Dobbin, who drove often to Brompton to see Amelia, came sometimes to Russell Square, too, to pay a visit to Miss Osborne. It was following the commands of their brother, the major in India, that they visited Amelia, and they kept Miss Osborne acquainted with the state of Amelia's affairs, how she was living with her father and mother, how poor they were, how she was still an insignificant namby-pamby creature, but the boy was really the noblest little boy ever seen. One day, Amelia allowed little George to go and pass a day with the Mrs. Dobbin, a part of which day she spent in writing to the Major in India. She congratulated him on the happy news which his sisters had just told her, and prayed for his and his bride's prosperity. She thanked him for a thousand kindnesses, and told him the latest news about little Georgie. 
she signed herself affectionately his friend, Amelia Osborne. She was glad to be able to admit how warmly and gratefully she regarded him, and as for the idea of being jealous of Glorvina, <laughs> Glorvina, indeed, that was nonsense. That night, when Georgie came back in the pony carriage, he had round his neck a fine gold chain and watch. He said an old lady had given it him, and cried and kissed him a great deal. But he didn't like her. He liked grapes. And Amelia shrank with a presentiment of terror when she heard that his aunt had seen him. Miss Osborne came back from the Dobbin household to give her father his dinner. He was in rather a good humour that day, and seeing her agitated, he deigned to ask, "'What's the matter, Miss Osborne?' She burst into tears. "'Oh, sir, I've seen little George. He is as beautiful as an angel, and so like him.' The old man did not say a word, but began to tremble in every limb. Chapter 43 in which the reader has to double the cape. The astonished reader must now transport himself 10,000 miles to the military station of Bundelgunge in the Madras division of our Indian Empire, where our gallant regimental friends are quartered under the command of the brave colonel Sir Michael O'Dowd. Time has dealt kindly with that stout officer. He has a good stomach and a good temper. He smokes his hookah after dinner and puffs quietly while his wife scolds him. Age and heat have not diminished her activity or eloquence. Lady O'Dowd is as much at home at Madras as at Brussels. Mounted on an elephant, she has been received by native princes who have welcomed her and Glorina. The sentries salute her wherever she appears. She is one of the greatest ladies in Madras. Peggy O'Dowd is indeed the same as ever, kind, impetuous, eager to command, a tyrant over her Michael, a dragon amongst all the ladies of the regiment, and a mother to all the young men, with whom she is immensely popular. But the subalterns and captains' ladies say that Glorvina gives herself airs and that Peggy herself is domineering. She put an end to a flirtation between Lieutenant Stubble and the surgeon's wife, so that Stubble broke it off at once and went to the Cape on sick leave. On the other hand, she sheltered Mrs. Posky, who fled from her bungalow one night, pursued by her infuriated husband, wielding his second brandy bottle, and she actually helped Posky through the delirium tremens and broke him of the habit of drinking. In adversity, she was the best of comforters. In good fortune, the most troublesome of friends, being resolved to have her own way— she had made up her mind that Glorvina should marry Dobbin. Glorvina, a very handsome, black-haired, blue-eyed young lady who could ride a horse or play a sonata, seemed the very person to ensure Dobbin's happiness, much more than that good little weak-spirited Amelia, about whom he used to take on so. "'Compare Glorvina to poor Mrs. Osborne,' Mrs. O'Dowd would say. "'Who couldn't say boo to a goose? "'She'd be worthy of you, Major. "'You want someone to talk for you.' 
It must be owned that Glorvina had had a season in Dublin, and who knows how many in Cork, Killarney, and Mallow. She had flirted with all the eligible officers and bachelors there. She had been engaged to be married a half-score times in Ireland. She had flirted all the way to Madras with the captain and chief mate of the ship. There are women, and handsome women too, who fall in love with the utmost generosity. They ride and walk with half the army list, though they draw near forty and yet find no husband. Well, although Lady O'Dowd and Glorvina quarrelled every day upon every conceivable subject, yet they agreed that Glorvina should marry Major Dobbin and were determined to bring this about. Undismayed by forty or fifty previous defeats, Glorvina laid siege to him. She sang Irish melodies at him unceasingly. She asked him so frequently and pathetically, "'Will you come to the bower?' that it is a wonder how any man of feeling could have resisted the invitation. She was ready to listen and weep at the stories of his dangerous campaigns. Our honest Dobbin used to play the flute in private. Glorvina insisted upon having duets with him, and Lady O'Dowd would rise and artlessly quit the room when the young couple were so occupied. Glorvina was constantly writing notes to him, borrowing his books, and scoring with great pencil marks such passages as awakened her sympathy. No wonder that public rumour assigned her to him, and that the major sisters in England fancied they were about to have a sister-in-law. Dobbin was meanwhile odiously tranquil. He used to laugh when the young fellows of the regiment joked to him about Glorvina's attentions. Oh, bah, said he, she is only keeping her hand in. She practices upon me as she does upon Mrs. Tozer's piano, because it's handy. I am much too battered and old for such a fine young lady as Glorvina. And so he went on riding with her, and copying music into her albums, and playing chess with her. As for Sir Michael O'Dowd, the old soldier refused point-blank to have anything to do with it. "'Faith, the Major's big enough to choose her himself.' Privately, he would caution the Major, "'Dob, my boy, them girls is bent on mischief. "'Me lady has just got a box of gowns from Europe, "'and there's a pink satin for Glorvina, which will finish you, Dob, "'if it's in the power of women or satin to move you.' "'But the truth is, neither beauty nor fashion could conquer Dobbin.' He had only one idea of a woman in his head, and it did not in the least resemble Miss Glorvina in pink satin. A gentle little woman in black, quietly spoken. A soft young mother tending an infant and smiling up at the major. A rosy-cheeked lass hanging lovingly on George Osborne's arm. This image filled our honest Major's mind, and reigned over it always. Very likely, Dobbin's sentimental Amelia was quite unlike the real one. But what man in love is better informed? Dobbin did not bother his friends about his feelings, or indeed lose any rest or appetite on account of them. His head was grizzled now, with a line or two of silver— but his feelings were not in the least changed. 
and his love remained fresh. We have said how the two Mrs. Dalbin and Amelia wrote him letters from England. Mrs. Osborne congratulated him upon his approaching marriage, which he had learned of from the Major's sister. Georgie sends his love to his dear godpapa, she wrote, and hopes that you will not forget him. I tell him that you are about to form other ties, with one who I am sure merits all your affection, but that, although such ties must, of course, be the strongest and most sacred, yet that I am sure the widow and the child, whom you have ever protected and loved, will always have a corner in your heart. This letter put Dobbin into such a state of mind that Glorvina and her pink satin became perfectly odious to him. He cursed the talk of women and the sex in general. Everything annoyed him that day. The parade was unsufferably hot and wearisome, and the senseless chatter of the young men was more than ever jarring. And after the boisterous dullness of the mess-table, the quarrels and scandal of the ladies of the regiment, why, it was unbearable, shameful. Oh, Amelia, Amelia, it is because you cannot feel for me that I drag on in this wearisome life. And you reward me after years of devotion by giving your blessing to my marriage with this flaunting Irish girl. Sick and lonely felt poor William. He would have liked to have done with life and its vanity altogether, so pointless and dreary the prospect seemed to him. He lay all that night sleepless and yearning to go home. Amelia's letter had fallen as a blank upon him. No fidelity of his could move her into warmth. She would not see that he loved her. Tossing in his bed, he spoke aloud. Oh, God, Amelia, don't you know that I only love you in the world? You, whom I tended through months of illness and grief, and who bade me farewell with a smile on your face and forgot me before the door shut between us. He read over and over all the letters which he ever had from her. How cold, how kind, how hopeless, how selfish they were. Had there been some kind, gentle soul near at hand, who knows what that Amelia's reign might have been over? But there was only Glorvina, and this dashing young woman was not bent upon loving the Major, but rather on making him to admire her. She curled her hair and showed her shoulders. She grinned all these charms. Lady O'Dowd gave a ball, at which Glorvina sported the killing pink frock, and the Major never so much as noticed it. In a fury, Glorvina danced past him with all the young subalterns, and the Major was not in the least jealous or angry. It was not jealousy, or frocks, or shoulders that could move him, and Glorvina had nothing more. Glorvina cried with rage at the failure. She had set her mind on the Major more than any of the others. She sobbed. He'll break my heart. He will, Peggy. While the Major was going on in this tantalizing way, declining to fall in love, there came another ship from Europe bringing letters for him. 
These were letters from home, bearing an earlier postmark than the former ones, and as Major Dalbin recognized his sister's handwriting, and as she wrote lectures with sisterly frankness, which left him miserable for the day after, the truth is that he did not hurry to break the seal of Miss Dalbin's letter. Two or three nights later, the Major had passed the evening pretty cheerfully at Lady O'Dowd's house, where Glorvina thought that he listened with rather more attention than usual to the meeting of the waters and the minstrel boy. The truth is, he was no more listening to Glorvina than to the howling of the jackals outside. Having taken leave of the Colonel's family, Dobbin retired to his own house. There, on his table, his sister's letter lay, reproaching him. He took it up, rather ashamed of his negligence, and prepared himself for a disagreeable hour. Sir Michael was asleep. Glorvina had arranged her black ringlets in curl papers. Lady O'Dowd had tucked her mosquito curtains round her bed when the guard in the compound beheld Major Dalbin in the moonlight, rushing towards the house in agitation. He went up to the colonel's window and shouted, O'Dowd! Colonel! Oh, heavens, Major, said Glorvina, putting out her head from her window. What is it, Dob, me boy? said the colonel, expecting a fire in the station. I must have leave of absence. I must go to England on the most urgent private affairs, Dobbin said. I want to be off now, tonight. In the postscript of Miss Dobbin's letter he had just read, I drove yesterday to see your old acquaintance, Mrs. Osborne, at the wretched place they live at since they were bankrupts. Mr. S. is now a coal merchant. The little boy, your godson, is certainly a fine child, though inclined to be saucy and self-willed. But we have taken notice of him, as you wish, and have introduced him to his aunt, Miss O., who was rather pleased with him. Perhaps Mr. Osborne may be induced to relent towards the child, and Amelia will not be ill-disposed to give him up. The widow is consoled, and is about to marry the Reverend Mr. Binney. A poor match, but Mrs. O. is getting old, with a great deal of grey in her hair. She was in very good spirits, and your little godson over-ate at our house." Mamma sends her love. Your affectionate Anne Dobbin. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.